Hey there, and welcome to What Happens Next with Ben and Philip. I'm Ben. And I'm Philip. Mate, I've got something I want to talk to you about. Let's get it. So, someone helpfully or unhelpfully emailed this article to me about one of those depressing articles about what's going to happen in the next 20 years. The sort of article which makes you a bit frustrated because some of the changes seem to be pretty bad. Yeah. It came from LinkedIn for what that's worth. But I think it was reposted from somewhere else. And it's an article by a designer. I'm just looking at my phone now. Points taken from a guy called Udo Gullub, the CEO of 17-Minute Languages, from his Facebook post. Good work, Udo. Yeah, thanks, Udo. So here we have a series of bullet points I'm looking at here about things that are going to happen in relation to disruption in the next 20 years. I want to hear thoughts about a few of these and we can try and crystal ball gaze what happens next in relation to how people pivot or react to some of these predicted changes. What do you reckon? Good plan. I would agree with that. I'm not sure what traditional industries are, but perhaps that's long-standing industries. By that, I assume he means, you know, for the manufacture or the sale of goods and services. Um, I think that he's right and I think it's probably already happened. But disrupt can be your initial instinctive reaction to that word would be that's a negative thing, but I'm thinking that disrupt might be more of a positive thing in, in, in most of these instances, unless, of course, you are the traditional set-in-your-way head of industry who doesn't want to change and move with the times, in which case it would be a negative, I suppose. Well, the examples they give here, Uber is just a software tool in that Uber doesn't make cars or own cars, yet they've become the biggest taxi company in the world. And another example they give is that Airbnb is now the biggest hotel company in the world, although they don't own any properties. So software allows this sharing economy where people can pay a little to borrow from someone else. I guess like renting a house, really. Yeah. But now applied to other parts of our life, such as temporary accommodation and transport. Yeah. I think it's interesting also, like people's reactions to say, Uber and Airbnb. I mean, I don't think many people, unless you're a taxi driver or a small bed and breakfast operator, would, or, you know, perhaps, you know, you live in an apartment and you're sick of all the other apartments being rented out to people yahooing on the weekend through Airbnb. But, sorry, the use of the word yahooing probably makes me sound like I'm 100 years old. But, um, <laughs> Get off my lawn. You just love all these, um, the negative sort of hysterical, potentially, I suppose, a little bit right-wing media Articles that come out about, oh, you know, so-and-so was, I mean, sure, it's bad, but raped by an Uber driver. Okay, taxi drivers have been getting up to all sorts of shit for a long time. And, you know, there wasn't an article about every time one of them tried to put his hand up a drunk girl's skirt at five o'clock in the morning. And then it's like, oh, so-and-so booked a holiday through Airbnb and it wasn't a real property because they paid outside the, the app. And, oh, Airbnb's terrible. It's like, well, how many people have had a dodgy ho- experience at a commercial hotel in their lives, you know? I just find that sort of, as a little sidebar, <laughs> I find that really quite quite amazing that people are like, oh, new technology, bad, ooh. Well, same with banking culture as well, like in relation to PayPal or banking alternatives that aren't the traditional old school banks. Someone gets ripped off by buying something on eBay and yeah. it becomes this huge deal like, oh my God, someone you know has been totally swindled out of their savings. Yeah. yeah. Banks are notorious for overcharging, for misleading people, people feeling trapped because the exit fees are too high, for massive credit card fees, for monthly statement fees. Exactly. And no one kicks up a fuss about that at all. That's just given as, oh, banks just cost that much. Mm. That's the cost of doing banking. Yeah. Yeah, it's bullshit. It's bullshit. Anyway, I totally agree with old mate. And, you know, software is, I mean, it is a very powerful, any sort of, Operating system that makes things cheaper and easier to access for people and more convenient is going to make a shitload of money, I would have thought. Well, I suppose when anything is software related, it can scale easily because if you're not manufacturing a thing, a widget, yeah. once you create the software, it's like you know apps on your phone, for example. Yeah, you don't need to buy acres of farmland or put up some enormous office building to house all your little workers. Which explains why all of these startups that sell for a billion dollars have like scores of people, not thousands or hundreds of thousands. I think when Instagram sold for a billion dollars to Facebook, they had like 
20 people or something and Kodak that was going to massive bankruptcy had thousands. Yeah. I know that recently one of the largest companies in the world, actually the owners of LinkedIn, um, had a big annual conference in Las Vegas and their budget for that conference that they spent was $100 million for their workers. They had one-fifth of their workforce there. Obviously, it was a very big company, but to do that, to spend $100 million on a conference for your employees every year, you must be making a shit ton of money on top of that. So, Well, LinkedIn, I guess, is an example of a software solution. But what I don't get is that in that case, it doesn't feel like it's actually replaced human resources, HR, or people in culture, whatever these various people-centric corporate departments are called around the world. Many of those organizations, those departments, they've kind of outsourced the responsibility of recruitment to LinkedIn or use LinkedIn as a shortcut to try and hire people, mm. yet they get their jobs. <laughs> yeah. They're the last people to get made redundant. <laughs> totally. Totally. It's I know people in various corporations that have actually changed jobs and moved into HR departments because they felt that they could earn more money and they were more, more protected. More stable. Because yeah. I guess you still need someone in the HR department to manage all the retrenchments and to pack up everyone's desk for them when they get the arse. <laughs> when they get marched. And I suppose they also know the, all, the ins and outs in relation to recruitment or negotiating a salary raise or when it comes to redundancies, getting the best possible deal. So in some ways, they're expensive to keep, but once they're there, they probably know all the tricks to try and get the to best. To try and stay there. Stay there. And the if best they do deal. leave, they leave on the best deal. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay, another point this article makes is about artificial intelligence. It just says that computers are becoming exponentially better in the understanding of the world. And we've heard that for years and years and seen that in movies. And it mentions as an example that this year a computer beat the best Go. Geo? What's that? Player in the world. Uh, I think it's a Chinese dice game. Is it? Okay. I tried to play it once. It was very hard. Oh, okay. Um, but here's something that will not float your boat. What's the opposite of floating your boat? Sink your battleship. Yeah. <laughs> Torpedo it. In the US, young lawyers already aren't getting jobs. That was always considered to be one of those professions where someone was quite quickly employed after college or university because of IBM Watson, which is IBM's AI machine. It can give legal advice for basic stuff within seconds, apparently. And apparently, it's got 90% accuracy compared with the 70% accuracy when done by human lawyers. I believe that because there are, I've seen some pretty average lawyers in my time. I don't believe that young lawyers aren't getting jobs because of a software program. I believe the young lawyers probably aren't getting jobs because there's not as much money in law firms anymore, but that is probably because people don't use lawyers as much as they once did. They might use a consultant or they might use their accountant or... There might not be the appetite for the large-scale litigation that there once was. I'm not sure. But um, I think people will still need lawyers. People are still going to have commercial disputes. You're not going to get a commercial dispute resolved by IBM's Watson program. You're not going to each type in your case and your submissions as to who's right and who's wrong, and the computer's going to spit out the judgment, and you're going to all walk away and accept that. Like, that's just silly. There's still going to be courts. You're still going to need litigators. You're still going to need people to draw up a will, I suppose, or family law matters, all sorts of things. But the young lawyers coming off the conveyor belt from college, university, going straight into the big law firm in the big city sort of suit style or going to say Anderson Consulting or one of the big consulting groups, Accenture or something and being reskilled because you've got good analytical skills and good reading and writing skills and you can be sort of reskilled as an analyst or a consultant or something. That's probably happening a bit less and, and maybe those sort of companies are looking more specifically for people with an IT background or a commerce background. But I think if I was going to college tomorrow, I probably would not go to law school for that reason. It's probably not the good diverse degree that gets you a a chance of getting a few different jobs that it might have been once upon a time. So I'd say good point, Udo, but maybe he needs to tone that one down a bit. Yeah, I like all of these articles you read. It's often not just one factor that is the cause of change. It's multiple factors and it's too simplistic to say that something like AI will be the exclusive reasons why there are less lawyers. I mean, Udo even says here, this is the quote, so if you study law, stop immediately. (laughs) There will be 90% less lawyers in the future. Only specialists will remain. (laughs) You're wasting your fees. Unquote. Now, 
the reality is, is that you've still got to have people being lawyers to then become the specialists anyway. So, there's, first of all, there's that. And to say 90%, I find that hard to believe. Maybe 50%. Mm. But like you say, there's a subtlety to the interpretation and application of law. If you look at particular aspects of the legal profession, which require human interaction mm. and understanding the nuances of human dynamics, yep. it can't be replicated by a computer. Mm. Like they say that the things that can be replicated by a computer are when you have repetitive tasks with small changes that create patterns. And yeah, sure, law is based on precedence in terms of legal cases, mm. but it isn't like a factory line where you have the same task over and over. You might, I guess, have contracts. That's an example where things are probably right for disruption because many contracts would be the same. And perhaps you could somehow use AI to try and identify slight differences. Yeah, you might be able to say, okay, computer, I want a contract for this purpose. But you still got to start from something. Someone's got to type it into the computer in the first place so it knows what to spit out. I don't know. And even if robots do come in and try and absorb some of those responsibilities from lawyers, humans by instinct by nature adversarial and there'll always be an opportunity to have the classic kind of you know coliseum type environment where it's one-on-one where they're swinging freaking axes or they're arguing in a courtroom it's opportunity of some person trying to seek justice or revenge against someone else and there'll always be the opportunity for a judge of some sort yeah i was doing a little better call soul is that So, yeah, I think what happens next? Do we recommend that people stop doing law if they're studying law? Yeah, all those law students out there who are having a break from their torts and contracts textbooks to listen to us, as soon as you've listened to us and and then shared it and rated us on iTunes and liked us on YouTube, pick up that textbook and get back hard at work because you've got a very bright future ahead of you. Don't worry about that. Yeah, what happens next in relation to law students? Look, I think it's like anything. If you really like something... You should do it because my theory is that it doesn't matter how scarce a job may be. If you only want to do that, it makes you happy and you can become the best in it. Then you just become one of those people who has that scarce role. If you do something because it's going to give you a safe job, but you hate it, you're probably going to quit it anyway. Yeah. If you are good at it and you like it at anything, chances are there's a market for your services. Exactly. And the thing is, yes, some jobs like acting or in the arts don't pay as well or there are less opportunities to reach those heights. But better to do that and try it and fail or be a success at it than go and do the job that apparently will be around in 20 years, like possibly cleaning toilets, which I guess is a stable job, but you don't like it or being an accountant or something like or that. Or operating the machine that will clean toilets. Yeah, exactly. Updating the software on the machine that will clean the toilets. Well, it's funny you mention that because there's been this whole hoo-ha in the US with Trump trying to play to middle America in relation to bringing back coal jobs. And the reality actually has been that the coal jobs have been on their decline for like 50 years since other forms of technology such as gas have come about. And those jobs are going away whether there's a really strong environmental push in the US or not because under several Republican governments, Just technology has changed. There has been automation. There's now embracing of gas and other opportunity, other types of fuels. Yet in some states, they've tried retraining people in IT, in computers, to operate other forms of energy creation, such as solar. Mm. So there are stories about, about these coal workers who, like, had the soot on the face with the blue overalls and had lived underground for. 20 years and they've retrained as software developers like for fourth, solar fourth generation coal miners from west virginia or somewhere wow that's cool actually what happens next in relation to that issue in relation to coal i wasn't aware of this that it isn't as easy as just saying oh look there are all of these coal jobs now you can't do that but we do have solar so you can do a solar job and what i didn't think about is that you can't transplant those people if they have the right aptitude as well, like the right inclination in terms of open to being retrained in computers or something like that, yep. is that the solar jobs aren't in those middle America cold, cloudy states. They're often elsewhere, like down south, close to the border of Mexico, like somewhere like 
you know, Albuquerque, Albuquerque or somewhere like that. And I say Albuquerque because that's- New Mexico. I was thinking of- um, Breaking Bad. Yeah, Breaking Bad. A bit of Call Saul. Yeah. <laughs> but that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Like- Spell Albuquerque. <laughs> there are other jobs around. They're just not in the same states as where those mi- coal miners were. And those coal miners aren't going to pick up sticks and move their entire families away from their family and friends to try and chase a job with an entirely different skill set a thousand miles or kilometres away. They might not, but America is probably the one place that they will do it because America is an extremely mobile society. You think of where people in America go to, for college um, as opposed to in other countries. People will go to a college on the other side of the country or people will move because they have managed to populate the whole of that country and you know, there's airport hubs everywhere, major airport hubs. They've got so many different what, three domestic carriers uh, at least that fly pretty much everywhere. You know, it is actually a very mobile society, but I take your point. I think, though, when you go to university or college and you're 18 and you don't have any attachments and so on, it's easier than when you say 45 with a family. Yeah, sure. But I think that that sort of, there are certainly a lot of people who, you know, have grown up in the one area and never left and people who have a traditional background in a certain industry like coal mining, certainly why would I leave? I'm a coal miner. My family's a coal miner. I can't mine coal anywhere else. So, But I think for a lot of other people, it's like, sure, I'll go to Florida from California to go to college. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'll apply for a job in Chicago. I'll just move up there. Well, I've seen Cannonball Run and National Lampoon's Vacation. And so that they are mobile. They're happy to drive long distances. They don't mind doing that at all, especially in a car with some nice fake wood panelling down the side. And uh, female drivers in a sports car with a nice cheeky zip around the uh, decollage, decoupage. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever that word is. It's decollage. Decoupage is, I think, when you get like photographs from magazines and you glue them onto something like a sculpture, right? That's decoupage. Maybe I should get walk, walk into the street. And I think say you might someone, need to ask IBM Watson what the answer is to that one. <laughs> I wonder if IBM Watson will have, you know, serious jokes. So, what happens next? Our advice I wonder there. if he's got any good lawyer jokes. Oh, you mean like in a kind of really meta-ironic way? Mm. Nice, nice. Well, apparently Watson's already helping nurses diagnose cancer. Apparently, they're four times more accurate than human nurses. And Facebook now has a pattern recognition software that can recognise faces better than humans. And apparently, in 2030, computers will be more intelligent than humans? I would have thought that they already are a lot more intelligent than a lot of the humans I know. Some humans I know are dumb as dog shit. But that being said, you know who you are, by the way. (laughs) What's the Facebook facial recognition thing? Oh, that's nothing that hasn't been around for a while already. I mean, Google and Apple already have that. It's just essentially with photographs ingested into Facebook, it can recognize faces and then it'll tag a name. So, if I've got a photograph of my beloved, it'll A, recognize the face as distinct from a bike or a canoe or a car or a mountain and then actually recognize who that person is and then Facebook tags that and does it actually actively first and then you untag it if you don't want to tag that person. But does it base its knowledge of what that person, of which of your contacts looks like that person based on your contacts or based and their photos in your contacts or is it based on other photos that you tagged this person in before? I don't know, but I'd say all of the above. That's fucking scary just quietly. So, I migrated about two years ago to Google Photos for that exact reason, for the face recognition because I want to be able to access photographs for like birthdays and pull up the photographs to, you know, note time passing and so on. And Google Photographs Photos was the first to do it. And now Apple Photos and others do it. And Facebook, of course, does it. And it was incredible. Basically, once I just tagged everyone in my family and friends as well, it went through thousands of photographs and found that same person. And even when people got older, particularly kids, for example, it was still able to track the same face. And then if it, for example, didn't, you just tagged an older version of the kid, then of course it could then tag the same kid, let's say four years, when four years younger and when four years older. It's pretty remarkable. And is this all in the cloud? Yeah. Hmm. It's kind of scary. 
So, I decided to, the benefit of that was so great to me in terms of the handiness of being able to access any photograph I wanted at the, you know, click of my fingers that I was happy to trade off any privacy issues in that regard. I've kind of given up on privacy. I mean, as of what happens next, do you think people will increasingly give away privacy even more than they already are for all of those benefits? Yeah. Because they already are in some ways, right? People don't even think about it. I mean, look how many people you know who put photos of their kids all over social media and they'll be like, oh, but it's a private account. Well, I think it's phenomenal. And the number of times someone gets in trouble, okay, some bodybuilder from, from a beachside suburb gets arrested for dealing some cocaine. The article the next day will have photos of him, his big bike, his big boat, his big muscles, his girlfriend, photos of all the parties they went to, spending all their money that they've, that they've made from selling cocaine. It's phenomenal. But people do it and they don't even think. But um, obviously, for you, it's a conscious decision because you're a smart person. But And sure, when I hear you say that, I think, yeah, that's actually that would actually be kind of handy. But I don't think I would ever do it. So, the, the photographs are still locked up, but obviously they have to be ingested somewhere in the world for that AI to analyse them. Yeah. And Google's philosophy is their public first, private second, and that helps their artificial intelligence work because the more data they have collated from around the world, the more holistic perspective they get and therefore they can accelerate their products. Whereas Apple is private first, public second and work in that whole closed ecosystem. So if you truly are worried about privacy, going with Apple, such as Apple's iCloud storage or Apple's iCloud email and so on is the best bet. But given that most people are kind of committed to either Hotmail or Gmail before something like iCloud email was really common, then most people have signed away without realizing it, a lot of their privacy through those free email services yeah, already. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've still got the same Hotmail address I had when I first got an email account when I was, I mean, that would have been, what, almost 20 years ago? So, your email provider, let's call it Bing. No, I'm joking. Is it Yahoo or Gmail or one of those? Yeah, Hotmail. Right, Hotmail. So It's terrible. It's a terrible service. Thank you, Microsoft. <laughs> well, as terrible as they are, they would have benefited from that stickiness that once you have a mobile phone number or an email address, you tend to stick with the same provider because it's more convenient than changing. Yeah. And that have 20 years of data where, depending on what terms you'd signed over to get free email, they can assess, you know, what shaving instruments you may have used or what you bought or jokes with your friends or you socialize with in what areas. 20 years of data. I mean, that's a pretty impressive portfolio or profile they have of you. Yep. I went to an overseas country last weekend and I landed. Why are you being so discreet? No. It's like Afghanistan or somewhere secretive. I had my plane on airplane mode while I was away. I didn't data roam or whatever you call it. I just used the Wi-Fi to send emails from the friendly hosts that I was staying with. But I was at the airport waiting for my flight in the lounge and I got a text message from my cell phone provider saying, heading overseas, why don't you buy a data roaming pack? And I said to my mate who I was with, I was like, did you just get one of those? I said, did I just get that because they know I'm at the airport? He's like, yep. I was like, that is fucked and scary. Anyway, I wasn't happy. So, basically, every single person that goes to the airport and their phone hits the tower at the airport would be the trigger to send you that SMS advertising the overseas service. Yeah, or maybe if you are in that one location for a certain period of time. Like, if you're in the car dropping someone off, you wouldn't get it, I suppose. But I've been in the lounge for about an hour. So, all of those SMSs I get about porno services and so on aren't because I'm driving past a porno service near a cell tower. It's because I'm spending too much time at that brothel. At the brothel, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. It's when you order the deluxe package that that's when you get it. Five of their finest bottles of champagne. That's right. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I think that ultimately- to put a bow on that bad boy, I think that people will increasingly give away more of their privacy. And yeah. here's an example of that. Two years ago, Google killed off Google Glass, which was their project where 
using augmented reality and, I guess, bringing information directly into the glass on those glasses in front of you. So basically taking the, the information from your cell phone, your mobile, and projecting it on the glasses you're wearing. You drive around and scan emails. But what was really scary was you could be on the train or in public places and look at someone and it could then decipher who that person is yeah. and tell you, which is like the worst stalking scenario you can imagine. And everyone went burko at that, yet two years later in New York, people are buying these Snapchat glasses which record 15-second or 30-second chunks for Snapchat, like Instagram stories, and they're kind of like bright and colourful and look kind of, you know, goofy. They're not like the slick Google Glass style that resembled something from Star Trek or something. These Snapchat yeah. ones resemble like those 1990s raver sunnies. Yeah. And everyone's totally cool with those. Only two years later, same idea, exactly the same. And then I read just recently that Google actually considering bringing back Google Glass, mm. but this time they're going to kind of ease into various companies where it could be actually quite helpful, where you're doing a task which requires you to focus on a task in front of you, but you benefit from some sort of stream of information while you're doing the task. And there's some speculation that that will be their gentle thin end of the wedge to go back into the consumer market. That scares me. Like the idea of being on a train and someone looks at me and then starts just reading information about me whilst they're sitting opposite me on the glass that they're wearing in their eyes, that is like one of the scariest things I can possibly imagine. Yeah, it's got to be up there. Another reason not to be on social media, have any presence at all on the World Wide Web. So, in regards to social media- <laughs> Says the man recording a podcast. Yeah, exactly. In regards to social media, have you terminated all of your social media accounts or just put them in hibernation, like not updated them? Dominated them. And was that because you had fears about privacy or because you were just anti the way that people are more narcissistic these days and you didn't like the environment of social media? It was like a rejection of the form. Bit of both. And also just- I'm not so much conscientious objecting to it. It's more just, okay, been there, got a bit out of it. Now it's like, yeah, I'm happy not, I don't need it. And then the sort of privacy sort of stuff feeds in and goes, well, I don't want all this shit of mine lying there dormant for people to access. I'll just take it off. Obviously, you know, it's still there in some form, but someone's probably artificially intelligently examining it as we speak. But anyway, good luck to them. So social media is like cargo pants for you. You enjoyed it at the time, but now you've gone back to denim. Yeah, it was function, functional at the time, served its purpose. It helped me, you know, reconnect with some old school friends because I was organizing a school reunion, whatever. But, you know, you can still stalk people. It's not as easy when you don't have a Facebook account. But So, for example, you went away overseas last weekend for a catch up with some friends, right? Yep. And you are sharing photographs through a shared online library of sorts. But I imagine that most of those mates of yours that were there are probably sharing the photographs through Facebook or Instagram or something like that. So if it wasn't for them sharing their photographs with you in some sort of cloud library, you wouldn't, wouldn't be part of that process at all. Like you, you wouldn't see the comments and the likes and the sharing and the commentary at all. You basically, old school, were there. You experienced it at the time, in real time. You probably saw a few photographs at the time, seen a few since then. but You've then like left the trip, kind of moved on, but their photographs are kind of like living in that space for like years to come. Yeah, but I think it's a unique position in that most of my friends that I know of don't use those social media. I'm sure they've got a Facebook account they look at every now and then, maybe a few of them. I know like a lot of their wives, for example, have an Instagram, but I, I don't think any of them do directly. So, yeah, that kind of arrangement so i don't think any of those photos are going to turn up anywhere else but i take yeah that's perfectly true and if i'm not as sensitive about it as my beloved is but yeah she certainly doesn't want her face on any social media website and so a lot of it comes from that as well so have you or her you or your beloved drifted apart from some friends or family because you don't regularly see photographs and updates from them and nor do they see stuff of you? And so, when you catch up, there's an absence or a distance? 
which was originally back in the day was how it was for everyone. But then you'd be the minority now because there'd be many people like their friends in like a different state or different country who would know more about what your family and friends are doing than you would because they would see stuff every day, whereas you sort of would catch up once a week or once a month or once every few months and do more of a traditional what's been going on thing and sort of like, you know, give a summary of that time. Whereas people on the other side of the country who'd be less good friends with them would get like the daily update or the weekend update when they're, you know, going to the zoo with the kids or going out for dinner or on the beers. Yeah, look, I think it can work both ways because you can be lazy and just be like, oh, yeah, I kept in touch. I'm friends with them on Facebook. I can just see what they're doing all the time. There's no need to call them or arrange to go and see them or send them a text for something and say, how are you doing? Because you feel like I've seen it all on their daily updates or whatever. And then the other view of it is, well, sure, I've got all that, but I don't need to know what they had for dinner last night or what colour their kid's shit was this morning. So, I'm going to disconnect that and if I really want to catch up with you, I'll call you. Old school. Or I'll write you a letter. But I probably don't know your address because who do- who knows anyone's address these days. Or a telegram. Did you ever use those telegrams, which were the ones, not telegrams, they were like aerograms, where basically it was an envelope folded over and it was about one and a half A4 pages and you'd write on it, then fold into itself and then mail it away? Yeah. I love relatives in England used to send those all the time. Yeah. So, when I was working in England like 20 years ago, I would send those to my family and vice versa from here to there. And I know that my dad loved them, I think, because there was a limited page space. So, essentially, you didn't feel guilty about not writing enough. You just wrote what you could in that space and either you wrote with big print or small print, but it was like the Twitter of the time. It was like the 140 characters of the time that you had to make it fit in that space. And that was just the rules of the game. And I think Dad liked that because, and I could be entirely wrong, and I hope I'm not being unfair to him, but you didn't have to kind of get too deep into anything. Totally. Particularly emotional stuff yeah. because, uh, you know, you basically describe events going on, that would feel the day, and then you just post it in the red letterbox. But you would also try to show that you had a lot to say and you actually would make a real effort. If you could sort of, you'd fill up the main part of the aerogram, but then you'd sort of had to like have like an arrow going, oh, continued up here. And then you'd be writing on the flaps and you'd like be writing sort of upside down on the flaps and around, all around the edges of it. And that made it look like you made a real effort to like really cram a lot into your story. You like maximised every possible yeah. millimetre. I think when I got one of those, I was like, oh, this, this person has got a lot of effort to complete the story to me. I appreciate the extra effort. And so, I used to try and replicate that. I actually got a whole bundle of those from my aunt who gave them to me. She kept them and she gave them to me saying, do you want them? And I was kind of quite dismissive of them. But in retrospect, essentially, it would have been like a diary from 20 years ago. Did you give him? No, I said no, chuck him. Mm, sometimes, yeah, it's always good to read those things once and then you sort of cringe and you wish I didn't. Or probably- read them, notice that perhaps you misremembered something and then maybe throw it out afterwards. I yeah. probably should have read it, but part of me, I think, was worried about the cringing bit. And also, I'm trying to be a minimalist these days and move forward because my biggest weakness is looking backwards and going, what if, what if, what if I didn't study this? What if I didn't choose that job? What if, what if, what if? And reading something like a journal entry or old aerograms from back in the day might make me either nostalgic, which again makes me look that the past is better, or make me cringe and then just feel like rubbish about, I don't know, perhaps saying naive about something or whatever. But I probably should have read them out of curiosity. Maybe I'll reach out to her and ask them. Maybe I'll write her an aerogram and ask her to send me an envelope of aerograms. That'd be a nice touch. So, in regards to what happens next with your uh, distance from social media, what would bring you back? Or is it a case it's like you're a kind of recovering alcoholic? You can't come back. Kind of, yeah. Like, I already spend too much time looking at my phone. And maybe I have just replaced an Instagram app with a sports app or or YouTube or something, but or podcasts, you know, walking around the house with headphones on listening to podcasts now, whereas once I did it with an iPod. So, I think the future, 
hopefully holds less time on my phone. And so I don't think I am coming back. Really, I don't think so. Well, the good thing about being away from social media is that we've talked before in relation to minimalism about decluttering your life, but also decluttering your head. And if you take social media out of the question, like, and literally take the apps off your phone, it's one less thing to be distracted by. So if you're waiting for a train or a bus or a drink at the pub or something, it's so easy to do a cursory glance and a scroll and a swipe on your phone. Totally. But when you occasionally don't do that and you just stare vacantly, the momentary boredom or introspection can actually be so good when you either think of something really directly, which you wouldn't have thought of had you not done that, or it just maybe has a subconscious effect you're not aware of that it's letting your mind just settle. Yeah, totally. Like, you leave the office to go and get a coffee at 10.30 in the morning and you're waiting at the lift. I mean, you take your phone. Why are you taking your phone? You're going to be gone for five minutes. You take your phone so you've got something to look at while you're waiting for your coffee for five minutes. It's crazy. And so, you're waiting for the lift. You look at your phone. You get in the lift. You're looking at, you're looking at your phone even though you're only getting three Gs in the lift. Everyone's in the lift on looking at their phones, pretending to read something, which they're not really reading because it's not really downloading because you're in the lift. And then you get out and then a lot of people walk along reading their phones, which I hate. And then they order their coffee. They don't even look up from their phones. They pay with their phones sometimes. They pay with their phones and then they're standing there waiting for their coffee and they don't even look up to say thanks. It's just like, fuck, it's crazy. Yeah, if you're working as a barista or a cashier at a cafe, you must just see all of these tops of heads of people with their neck tilted down on their phones. They look up, probably barely glance you in the eye. They probably look at the cash register price or aim their credit card at the pay pass machine or their phone to pay for it turn away already on their phone as they turn it's slightly depressing right like you're in a job which is a service what do they call it a service front-facing industry but you'd be barely seeing the whites in people's eyes yeah and then you'll do all that you'll get to the coffee shop you'll order your coffee then you'll sit down and then you'll meet a friend the friend will come you'll start having a conversation and then a topic will come up in the conversation they'll be like oh hang on here i'll show you what i'm talking about pull out the phone, scroll through to a photo of whatever you're talking about. It's like, well, it's kind of what I pictured it would look like. So, thanks for that. I did have a pretty good idea of what a beach looked like or something, yeah. I'm guilty of that. And what I'm guilty of doing is not finding the thing quickly enough. Hang on. Here it is. No, wait. Uh, Hang on. I'll show you a photo. Oh, no, that's not. Oh, no, there's a better angle than that. Oh, actually, sorry. No, that's not the one at all. I think I've got on an email here. Hang on. Oh, that happened to me today. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Bad. Well, in relation to what happens next for etiquette, I'm really fearful where we're going and I am just holding strong on maintaining social etiquette in regards to phones because I think I love my phone. My phone is a camera, it's a computer, it's a calendar, it's a walking, talking, reading device. It's almost replaced my iPad. I now subscribe to YouTube's paid service to avoid ads. I put it in my pocket and still listen to stuff like a podcast, which you can't do ordinarily with free, regular YouTube. So I really do enjoy my phone, not necessarily the brand of the phone. I just like Is that why it always turns off when you- So unlike a podcast, you can't close the app and keep listening to it on apps like YouTube or- So you can't- Bring up or a 50-minute concert video and then listen to it like a CD as you walk along. Correct. It's because they want you watching, looking at all the ads on the screen? Yeah, I think you're right. Looking at the ads on the screen, it's a visual medium and I guess it's just one more thing to throw in as a benefit if you pay. Now, for me, huh. I really dislike advertisements and so I guess paying for any subscription service like a Spotify or a the on-demand okay. streaming service like a Netflix or whatever is kind of in that same vein, right? That's what broadcast network TV is. It's free with ads as general rule. And if you pay, you don't get ads and you get a few other benefits. In this case, I can also download, say, YouTube videos offline. So I can just click save and it just saves on the hard drive of my phone. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's really handy. So if you, I can download, say, a 50-minute TED Talk or a 50-minute how-to talk on anything and listen to it when I'm outside the house away from Wi-Fi. That's pretty handy. 
What do you pay for that? That's pretty expensive. It's 12 bucks a month Australian. I think it's $10 US if you live in the US. But it also gets you access to Google Play Music, which is the Google version of Spotify or Apple Music. That's pretty good. So, Apple Music and Spotify, I think, cost about 10, 12 bucks anyway, right? So, the way I look at it, it's just like paying for a music service. They get all the benefits of YouTube as well. Yeah, that's cool. So, it's really good. They're rebranding it now-ish to make it clearer how it all works, but it's basically- And avoid the obvious red tube confusion. I don't know how a multi-billion dollar company, one of the biggest companies in the world, can decide to choose a name for their paid service that people confuse for one of the most famous porn sites in the world called RedTube. Don't get it. Oh, so that is a thing. Yeah. People do confuse them. Yeah. yeah. There's PornTube, Mate, which I, play I, I wouldn't know. on YouTube. And well, I work in the media industry, so everyone knows all these various <laughs> portals. Yeah. So, there's PornTube, which is a play on YouTube. And there's- Is that a good one? I don't know. I think they're all the same, right? I just assume that's all just versions of porn. And then there's YouPorn, I think, which is another play on YouTube. And there's RedTube and other ones. Anyway, so it has a similar name to a major porn provider. I raised all this because, oh, yeah, what happens next in relation to phone etiquette? I have reached that point that I lose massive respect for someone if I'm talking to them and they pull out their phone. I think we've discussed this before without any cursory apology. Or any good reason, like sorry, birth. Just want to check the footy score. Do you do that? Sorry, mate. Swans are playing tonight. The game was almost finished when I was in the car on the way here. I just do my if I just check the score, see who won. I'm okay with that though, because you, that you've actually asked. Yeah, said, that's cool. It's when someone just pulls it out in front of you. You're talking with them, and they just go to their phone to the look at something, totally. or check a text. That's what annoys me because there's no apology or explanation. It's like. You're talking to someone in a cafe and the metaphor is they just turn around and talk to someone else. It's like, whoa, 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 I thought we would have a conversation here. And they've suddenly started talking to the person at the counter behind them. I think it's only going to get worse because it is young people who do it. Like, I'm not joking. It's shocking. You stand in a queue at a bar with your mate and you'll be talking to him. You'll be like, yeah, hey, so how about, how about this? How about that? Oh, check out that person over there. What's taking so long? How long it's take to pour a beer? The 19-year-old girls in front of you are also friends and they're also doing the exact same thing you are, waiting to order a drink. But they'll both have their phones out and they'll both be in their own little world absently scrolling through pages and pages of shit. And it'll just be social media. It's not a website. It's, you know, not the New York Times or something or even Donald Trump's Twitter feed. It's, it'll just be their random Instagrams or something. And they won't even be doing it for the purpose of showing each other, oh, here's that photo of that girl we used to know I was talking to you about before. Oh, no, they're just doing it. They're just scrolling. It's weird. Anyway, what happens next for them is a sad, sad future. Bad bad eyesight, abnormally large, dexterous thumbs, (laughs) and a life of, I don't know, difficulty maintaining relationships, difficulty focusing. You know, short attention spans. I seriously think that's all going to happen. Yeah, I think the genie's out of the bottle. I think it's like the way that teenagers have unfortunately had expectations about sex by exposure to porn, which wasn't as available pre-internet. And I think once the genie's out of the bottle, it's just a case of now coping with it, but you can't change it. And I think if you reach a tipping point where most people on the train or most people lining up for a drink at the pub or most people lining up around a brister at a cafe are all doing it, then technology or the phones or culture has won, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And all you can do is then either barricade yourself in like a hermit against it all, or perhaps, I guess, more realistically, just align yourself with people with similar values. But the problem is, is that they're becoming, you know, freaking as rare as dodo birds. And you come across too as being unprogressive or a killjoy, which is crap because I don't think, and this will make me sound like an old fogey, I don't think being courteous and having manners is like nana or, you know, grandpa style behavior. I just think it's respectful. It's not old fashioned. It's just, it's not an outdated idea. You know what? It's respect. Hmm. Here's the thing is that 
There was a time back in the day pre-phones, and again, I love my phone, I use it all the time. There was a time before phones when you would turn up on time, you wouldn't be late, and you had to turn up because the person would be waiting there before. Again, I think I'm having deja vu that we've discussed this already, but there was a sense that you would turn up because you respected the time of the person who you were meeting because they were a friend or a workmate or family. And there was no way of conveying that you were going to be late. So, you just had to be on time. Yeah. And if you were with someone else, again, they didn't have a phone. So, this was the norm. Everyone worked in a world where you just turned up for a time. Or if you were going to be late, it wouldn't be very long. And you'd go to the umpteenth degree, like calling the restaurant ahead of to say, if there's someone there in a blue t-shirt, please advise them that I've been delayed or something. But with phones, it is a license for it. To me, a lack of courtesy where- Totally. Oh, I'll just text you or call you and say I'll be late and you know I'll be there in 30 minutes. It's like, well, I'm still waiting here. And the problem is that they know that you've got a phone yourself. Hmm. And so, you can keep yourself occupied for 30 minutes on your phone as they would do if the shoe was on the other foot. And so, there's a vicious circle going on where then people are tolerant of that because they can keep themselves busy flicking through Instagram or Tinder while they're waiting. Yeah. And so, it's just this- bad cycle yeah i agree what happens next is is just they all die very lonely and friendless because everyone gets upset with them what happens next is that there'll be some sort of bigger backlash than there already is and it'll be like people return to vinyl or minimalism or like we had this backlash against for example car ownership with people or taxis by embracing airbnb uh embracing uber I think it'll be something like that. I think people will start doing a- It'll be like a culture yeah. of- um, People will actually ironically watch YouTube videos of people saying, yeah, like when you go out for the night, just leave your phone behind. And there'll be all these vox pops of people mm-hmm. going, it was really weird. I felt nude. Like I left my phone behind. I was worried yeah. about how to get home in terms of the Uber. How would my friends find me there? How would I take photographs of the night to document it? How would I share the moment with people with photographs or updates on social media? It just felt so nude and weird. And it'll be this whole movement. Nude's good. Well, yeah. Well, there is good and there is bad naked. (laughs) Which season of (laughs) Seinfeld is that? Uh, I can picture the episode. I'd say it's sort of two thirds of the way through. All right. Well, here's something funny. I'm guessing. We've talked before about the advantages of streaming services, and that's for another time to yak about. But because of the flexibility of buying electronic media versus having to buy hard media in the shops, um, I went through and watched nine seasons of Seinfeld. I just mainlined it in about three weeks, having not watched it in uh, how many two years? No, 20 years. How many eps is that? Starting with season one, it goes basically 10, 12, and then very quickly it jumps to broadcast television standard of 22 per season, right through until I think there's 24 in the final season nine. There's like two clip shows. So basically, on average, it's about 20, 22 for the entire nine seasons. I just played in the background whilst I cleaned the house. Okay, speaking of my phone, I just put on my phone by beaming up to my phone you know, through via Wi-Fi. So, I'm cleaning up at the house. It's just sort of like propped up on the corner. And uh, yeah, it was awesome. The majority of it all stood up, except for season nine, got a bit too kind of wacky. And yeah, it started sort of building this whole mythology. Like, there's this thing about Seinfeld where every episode was self-contained. And I quite liked that. And then later on, seasons eight and nine, You've got a lot of repeat characters and they often reference storylines from previous episodes, which is fun, but it's a different type of show. It's less of a sitcom, more of like a long, long form comedy. Yeah, I agree. Uh, they probably did lose their way a little bit towards the end, but still, I had no idea. If you had said how many episodes, I would have said 120. I would have had no idea they made over 200. That's, so, is that the sort of numbers we're talking? Yeah, it's probably like 180, 190. It's, yeah, okay. Yeah. It's a lot. Larry David left, I think, at the end of season seven, the co-creator who went on to do Curb Your Enthusiasm, but he and Jerry Seinfeld did seasons one to seven. And there is a noticeable difference with seasons eight and nine. Not bad. It's like The Simpsons. It's like a different voice 
It's yeah. not the voice I like as much. Yeah. But it isn't his voice that I like so much. Like, yeah. for example, George Costanza, who is based on Larry David, he was kind of like this schlubby guy for the first four seasons and kind of like a bit of a sad sack. But towards seasons seven, eight, nine, he's like really angry and mean. And like these constant montage moments of him going, George isn't happy. Yeah. And basically yeah. being kind of really angry and short tempered and yeah. cranky the whole time, which is actually really fun. But the characters like start becoming meaner and meaner, which is why I think the final season ends with them in court having all yeah. these returning, returning characters basically do a character assassination of them. Yeah. Because they've all become mean. Like Elaine, for example, was like this sweet as apple pie woman in the first few episodes and seasons wearing like these long kind of dresses. And then she kind of goes into the dark, dark red, almost black lipstick. The really kind of aggressive acerbic comments. Yeah. So, I really enjoyed it. Um, it stands up pretty well. Like, for a, a show that ended 20 years ago in 98, really stands up. Definitely. All right, mate. I think we have again solved the problems of the world. Um, it's been a pleasure as always. Stay in school and stay off your phones. That's <laughs> the motto from today's episode. If you want to catch any future episodes, head along and you can catch... What Happens Next with Ben and Philip, one of the segments on the Ben Phelps Show, which you can find in all those usual podcast apps like Apple Podcasts and Google Play Music and Stitcher. And if you Google us, speaking of uh, AI and privacy, you'll find us on the usual social media interfaces. Well, actually, that's, that's, not, the, that's not the case at all. You'll find me and... Uh, You'll have to dig deep Sherlock style to try and track down Phil from his bunker somewhere deep in the forest. With my colander on my head. <laughs> no, and a tin hat, yeah. Made of foil. <laughs> All right, mate. Let's call it a night. Until next week, be good, stay strong. Okay, mate. You too.